Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast, a podcast in which we seek to go behind questions that are being asked by people in our society today and find what's behind that question. What are some of the deeper issues involved and address those from a biblical standpoint? I'm Pastor Charles Roberts and I'm joined by my co-host Andrea Schwartz. Today, Andrea, we want to uh, deal with an issue that is of concern to a lot of people and we get questions about this. And that is, what should we do about racism and bigotry in our society? But behind that question is a more central issue, and that is, what does God's Word teach us about dealing with people who are different than we are? People are different than we are in different ways and capacities. Maybe a good way for us to start is by my asking you, could you tell us what you understand the term racism to be, or what would be a good definition, and is that term useful at all? Well, I personally don't think it's a useful term any longer because whatever definition you might embrace, that isn't necessarily what's being thrown around in the public square. Nowadays, if you want to shut somebody up, call them a racist, not too different than calling someone a Nazi. Who wants to be called that? Doesn't mean that we're upholding views that are contrary to scripture. But if we're going to really get into a discussion on this, I think we need to define some terms. What does it mean to discriminate? What does it mean to have a bias? What does it mean to have a prejudice? These are words that are sometimes used interchangeably, and invariably, you will hear the retort. Christians just judge. Jesus said not to judge. Well, it's a ludicrous statement because nobody can go through life without discriminating without having some sort of bias, and without having some sort of prejudgment. I mean, we call them presuppositions. So, for example, let me tell you some of my biases. I am biased against anybody who would want to dissolve my marriage and try to put a wedge between my husband and me. I have a definite bias against adultery. I don't need to apologize for that. It's where I lean. It's because it's based on my core principles. In terms of discriminating, anytime you're anywhere at the grocery store and you're deciding which line to go on, you're making a discrimination. Is it based on, I don't like the way those people look who are in that line, or this line looks like it'll be quicker or whatever it is. So first of all, we don't have to apologize for the fact that we make choices. What currently is being called racism should be examined in terms of what does the person mean and why is the term being levied against someone else? Well, and and another thing that we need to understand in in, uh, talking about this subject is that race certainly is an issue. What I mean by that is that we all are members of the human race. Caucasians, Africans, Asians, Indians, Arabs, Jews are not different races, rather they're different ethnicities of the one human race. All human beings have similar, if not identical, physical characteristics. You know, there are minor exceptions. Some groups of people may be taller or short, but we're all the same as human beings. And as we have talked about in a previous discussion concerning education, 
really at bottom of this issue is what is your worldview? What is it that is the motivation for how you understand and interpret what it means to be a human being? And of course, for us, as people who have the Bible as our foundation, as God's law as our foundation, we start with the fact that God created humanity in his own image and likeness. We are told this in Genesis chapter 1, and further, that Jesus died for the sins of his people, and his people were not of all the same ethnicity. Now, we'll get into that in more detail as we go through this discussion. It says that God so loved the world, to get a little technical, in that John 3.16 passage that's so often quoted, the Greek term for world there is the term cosmon, which is an all-encompassing idea of the concept of, of the world not meaning, say, the Roman Empire, the world of the Roman Empire, or something like that. So the scope of God's creative activity, the scope of his redemptive activity, uh, involves all different kinds of people who are members of the human race, biologically speaking. But also we have a classification of people within a quote-unquote certain race, and the separation is between those who are members of God's family versus those who are not. So let's go back to the first book of the Bible. Everybody descends from Adam and Eve. We don't have an evolutionary viewpoint that says different apes became people at different times. That could account for a differences in races if you were going to look at it, but we don't believe that's what it says, nor do we believe that's how God created it. So everybody stems from Adam and Eve. Then, of course, there was a period of time where Mankind developed, and people became more and more sinful, and God decided to obliterate everything, with the exception of Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. So in a very real sense, we all descend from Noah. So we have common ancestry in Adam, and we have common ancestry in Noah. So you made a good point. Despite what part of the world you live, Despite how tall or how short you are, by and large, everybody has two eyes, two ears, one nose, two arms, and two legs. And from the time someone is born, there's an identification. Congratulations, you have a boy or you have a girl. These are the things that are true for everybody. So why have this differentiation? Well, I think part of it has to be laid at the doorstep of an evolutionary world and life view that basically says, Mankind is not uniquely made in the image of God, that he really and truly is a progression from animals. And so when you have a view that says certain characteristics are more beneficial than others and that some people with certain characteristics shouldn't even be considered people, that comes from an evolutionary mindset, either intently or purposely and deliberately embraced or maybe subtly embraced and people aren't recognizing where that view comes from. Yes, this is the dirty little secret of the humanists and uh, the secularists who want to promote an idea that we who embrace the biblical worldview are sort of backwoods types who aren't in touch with the modern world. The fact is, as you just pointed out, the earliest promoters of, and indeed the progenitors of the evolutionary perspective and the, the early scientific worldview divorced from any uh, accountability to the authority of scripture were also the people who gave us the idea of eugenics 
of cleansing the quote-unquote race of undesirable types of people. They were the original quote-unquote racists in that modern sense of the term. But these are the same people who are the hallowed saints of modern humanism, like Margaret Sanger and, and Darwin, for that matter. I remember seeing a, a video, wish I could remember the details, I think it was on YouTube, but it was just a heart-wrenching, awful video about the early eugenics movement and how mentally handicapped people, people who were judged to be less than a certain standard of quality in the race, and we're not even talking about necessarily ethnic groups different than, say, quote-unquote, white people. These were people who were just considered slow, stunted learners. The women were sterilized so they couldn't have children anymore. And, of course, we've seen this same sort of thing in horrible ways in the 20th century relating to specific ethnic groups. This is not the outcome or the stepchildren of a biblical perspective. It is, in fact, the outcome of a humanistic perspective divorced from God. Now, I, I want to go back again also to the beginning, as you said. After Noah, we find the world coming together in an effort to create a unity without God's plan and without God's purpose, and that is given to us in the Tower of Babel. And we know the result of that is that God confused the languages and he scattered people across the face of the earth so there would not be that unity. Now, the purpose for that was, the true biblical perspective is, is that it was an attempt to bring together a united human family divorced from God's law, divorced from God's authority. It was to be a humanistic unity. The correction for that God's restoration of human unity was in Christ Jesus, and sort of the paradigm example given to us is at the day of Pentecost, where people of different language groups could understand the message of Jesus. So you have this competing idea of a united human race with all different types of ethnicities involved. The early Tower of Babel movement brought together people of different language groups and cultures, and interestingly enough, the days in which the earliest apostles and Jesus himself ministered was in the midst of another example of the very same thing, and that is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a very culturally diverse empire, and it was an antitype, if you will, a mocking of the biblical example, where it didn't matter if you were a Spaniard, an African, a German, you could be a Roman citizen. There was no discrimination, as we would think of it in that sense today, if you did whatever the state said you needed to do to become a citizen. And so against that paradigm came the biblical example of true heavenly citizenship or citizenship of the kingdom of God. I think we need to go back to the idea that God's law is what we've been given to govern how we relate to him and how we relate to each other. Yes. So the second great commandment has to do with a summary of what we would call the second table of the law. It doesn't matter what color you are, what height you are, what language you speak. I'm not supposed to murder you. I'm not supposed to disrupt your marriage. I'm not supposed to steal from you. I'm not supposed to slander. And I'm not supposed to covet and then put into action my covetousness so I can legally, even though not lawfully, take stuff from you. And so there, there are no differentiations in God's law that says these laws only apply to people who look like you. The other thing is, in the sovereignty of God, when he thwarted the plan that the architects of the Tower of Babel had put in place, when I teach this to young people or to people who had never heard it before, I really want them to picture what that must have been like. Yesterday, you could talk to your neighbor, and he understood you. 
today you say something and he doesn't have a clue in what you're saying. So the process must have been something along the lines of people finding others who spoke their language. And so it was part and parcel of what God decided that people would be separated into different groups. So if we're going to say that a sovereign God ordains all that comes to pass, God must have a reason that there were going to be people who were going to have physical distinctives, even though they were obviously human beings. Also keep in mind, those classification charts that we got in school has everything to do with promoting the idea that human beings are just a little bit more advanced than apes. And we're going to see all how it has to have been this way, that this became this and this became the other thing. I think that is an underpinning of racism as it's currently talked about today because somebody elevates their particular characteristics and says, well, this is the best. We're number one. My team is better than your team because why? Because it's my team, because it's my geographical area. So this whole thing plays into the sinfulness of man, that if we were honoring God's word on how we treat other people, we could have our biases you know, I like people with curly hair more than I like people who don't have curly hair, or I like people who are tall as opposed to people who are short, we would recognize those biases, which is fine, but we can't operate and act as though we now have the justification to treat those people differently. I'll just throw out some scripture passages, Deuteronomy 10.17, Acts 10.34, Romans 2.11, among others, that God shows no partiality or favoritism. And in James 2, verse 4, we are told that those who do discriminate and do so as judges with evil thoughts, I think is the term that's used. And we are to love our neighbor. It's what we are encouraged in James 2.8. Something you said just a moment ago about the context of God's law, when that law was given, there were no asterisks with C note at the bottom, this doesn't apply to this ethnic group or that ethnic group. As a matter of fact, most people don't realize this or they don't think about it. When God gave his law to his people, it was an ethnically diverse group of people. They had come out of slavery in Egypt, and Egypt, like Rome, was a vast empire that encompassed lots of different types of people. So I don't know what image people have in their heads about what the early Israelites looked like when Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets of the law in his arms, but we have this idea if it was some one homogeneous group, we're quite mistaken. It really never has been that way. And although the, the people of Israel were separate from the Gentiles, nevertheless, in terms of ethnicity, uh, the Israelites were typically made up of many different types of groups of people. And uh, there were ways in which people who were not, quote-unquote, native Israelites could be grafted into that family according to God's law. Today we make everything based on skin color or gender, when in actual fact there are a lot of things or we would call injustices that take place because of people of diverse economic situations or diverse athletic or physical characteristics and abilities. So. We must acknowledge the fact that sinful man always likes to justify himself and make himself better than other people. And maybe if he can't be better than other people, what he wants to do is hold other people down so that he looks good by comparison. Yes, and I think that the other problem that we face today with this idea uh, of what is called racism is that it tends to falsify our thinking where 
we can clearly see with our own eyes that there are quote-unquote differences between people, and you alluded to, you know, height differences, hair differences. But the question is, what is our standing in Christ? Is there anything in Holy Scripture that gives us the least reason to be concerned about such differences in terms of how we relate to people? One of the classic passages is given to us by Paul in Galatians 3.28, where he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And again, I want to juxtapose that statement against the other standard of the day, and that is you are all one in Rome. You are all one in Emperor Caesar. Exactly. And in the same book of Galatians, he says, do good unto all men, especially those of the household of God. So it's not that we're not supposed to have the ability to show preferential treatment. If I'm at a store and I see something that's very cute, I might buy it for one of my grandchildren. I don't buy it for every child I'll ever encounter. So it's not that the scripture is telling us that we're not allowed to have preferences. We are. But note, he says, to the household of faith. So if we're really going to look at a race that should matter to Christians, it's the Christian race, that we're part of the communion of saints. It doesn't mean that, therefore, we can treat other people like trash. As a matter of fact, we're told many places that we're supposed to let our light shine. We're supposed to make disciples of all nations. You don't do that by letting other people know how inferior they are to you. In Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 34, we find the example of the Apostle Peter, who had his own education uh, in this matter in terms of the wideness and the openness of the kingdom of God, where he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I don't know how anyone could even remotely come close to building a worldview on what is generally considered to be racist from a statement like that. The world in which, as I said, in which Jesus and the apostle ministered was a, an ethnically diverse world, and the whole purpose of the message of the kingdom is that all people are to be brought into it. Revelation 7, 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is a perspective on the triumph of the kingdom of God in real time and in real history. And this is not some perspective about something that will happen way off into the future. This is what we are to work for now, to where the unifying factor in all of us that brings us all together is we are one in Christ Jesus. This goes back to the previous podcast where we talked about education and humanism as the curriculum and the world and life view. You tell people that the Bible is what causes racism, and if they don't have exposure to the Bible, or if they go to church but they're never taught from the Bible, they're just given nice, feel-good, positive messages that don't base themselves on the authoritative word of God, then people are going to believe what they hear. They're going to think that every genocide that was perpetrated was done so by people who embraced Christianity, as opposed to people who were disobeying the tenets of Scripture. And that's why it's so important for Christians to be effective evangelists, is to know the Word of God and know the difference between falsified history and accurate history.
And as you just mentioned, uh, it's it's not we're not saying that there haven't been examples of people being culturally or ethnically insensitive who have been attempting to promote the message of Jesus. We find this in the New Testament, where the early apostles ran into the challenge of ministering to Gentile or pagan believers. They had to settle some issues relating to how those people functioned in their own cultures, and those matters were discussed then. It is a continual challenge, but God, in His wisdom, and his providence has seen fit that his message go forth and people from different cultures and different language groups, you know, sometimes have their own unique ways of worshiping him and praising him or bringing to bear the word of God in their own culture and society. But the, the fundamentals, the basic aspects of it are going to be the same no matter what the language group or no matter what the ethnic group. And insofar as there are deviations from the standard of God's law, this is where the problem comes in. It's not anything inherently built into the Christian system, the the biblical system. It is people who are defecting from that or something that is far more based on, on humanism and evolutionary theory, as you mentioned earlier. And today, racism really is the default position if I can tell you I'm offended by something you say. That was a slur against me in some way. Well, I have to tell you, I come from an Italian family, and some of the harshest barbs that were ever delivered were between my father and his brothers. And they were all of the same ethnic origin because they came from the same parents. So when they would call each other names in jest, they would use terms that had to do with their particular ethnic group and people laughed, and they moved on. It wasn't, I mean, whether or not they should have done that, these were not fighting words. Now, what happens is, if we get very territorial, and somebody else uses a term against us, and they're not part of that ethnic group, they're not supposed, suddenly they're not supposed to be able to say it. And you see that today rampantly, and I'm not going to give examples, because I'm sure most people know. The, I'm offended, and you have offended me, only works for certain groups of people because, you see, we have filtered information that will then identify injustices and call these injustices religiously based, and what they mean, of course, is Christian-based. And so today, what do we see the lines drawn? Well, when we have worldwide contests in the Olympics, Somehow or other, I'm supposed to root for the people of my country, and someone else is supposed to root for the people of their country. Aren't these discriminatory things? Why aren't we interested in the best athlete, and may the best athlete win? People have this tendency to elevate themselves at the expense of other people. Now, there is no doubt in various points of history, both American history and world history, these ideas got systematized into maintaining the dominance of one group of people over another. But you can't say that they were reading the Bible and applying it. What you can say is that some were deliberately not applying it, and others were inconsistent in their application, quite possibly because the full counsel of God wasn't being taught, and they had inadvertently bought into a very degraded and detrimental world and life view that says men are just glorified animals. And that's why you have to examine before you allow yourself to be taught by a movie or a novel or a textbook, you really want to be able to examine the presuppositions. Is somebody giving you a view of history that's clouded by conclusions they've already come to? 
I think it was Cornelius Van Til, the theologian, who would talk in terms of there is no such thing as brute factuality. There are not just facts that are floating around and we grab a fact and this is a fact, that all facts are going to be interpreted through a certain lens, through a certain way of looking at things. So two people can look at the same thing that is called a fact and come to very different conclusions. And that goes back to something I was saying earlier about the eugenics movement and the early um, promotion of evolutionary theory and a uh, materialistic scientific uh, worldview. That is very much the premise of those philosophies, that there is, in fact, brute facts. And we start with those, those facts. We don't start with what God says and the foundation of his word. And so whatever is present to us at the given moment, however we define advanced cultures and societies, well, then that's what we need to promote. And lo and behold, we look at this particular ethnic group of people, and by our standard, they are backwards, so we need to make sure that they diminish and don't have any influence. And that, again, is part of the agenda of the early eugenics movement. It was all based on race. The early examples of what we think of today as racism are people who, uh, like, like the Hitlers of the world, for example, who were very impressed with and learned from the eugenics movement that was popularized in Great Britain and here in the United States. And again, those were the quote-unquote liberals of the day who were promoting these ideas. Right. So when you have people who have codified their preferences quite independently from what the Word of God says, either they don't acknowledge God's Word as authoritative or they're really basically living out the sin of Genesis 3-5, determining for themselves what's right and wrong, you're going to have all sorts of faulty ways of dealing with people in general. And categories change. Before we got into the map as it is now, within what we call Italy, there were lots of different cities and, and groups that had issues with, with each other. Even we call the American Indians. The American Indians didn't originally look at themselves as the American Indians. They looked at themselves as individual tribes that somehow had problems with other tribes. So we have this falsification that is often as a result of the textbooks, which are the pre-digested facts that everybody's supposed to know. Instead of looking at things with a biblical lens, it's so easy to condemn forebears one way or the other because somebody has presented a history that says, therefore, because this group did this, everybody in that group thought that way. You know, we've mentioned the examples of early Genesis several times already, and I want to go back once again to that and address something that people may hear this from time to time from a few sources, and I have heard this and um, looked into it myself. We've talked about the fact that there's only one race, and that's the human race, we are all created in the image of God. Now, there have been some people who have looked at these passages in Genesis, and these are people who have been predisposed to the idea of the racial superiority of, in this case, the Caucasian or Anglo-Saxon race. And they will say something like, aha, but this is where you're wrong. Because when you look at the, the name Adam, Adam, it literally means to blush to show blood in the face, which implies somebody of light skin complexion. Because somebody of a darker skin, you can't tell if they're blushing. And on that rather nebulous and absurd linguistic study, an entire system of racial superiority can be built. Well, if anybody hears this 
let me just tell you that the simple rejoinder to that is, is that, yes, the, the term Adam means to have a ruddy complexion, to have an earthly, earthy kind of red, dirt, earth-looking appearance. So the people who advocate this view uh, from the standpoint of a Caucasian racial superiority have no leg to stand on. What they should be advocating is the superiority of people with red skin, <laughs> not whiter or something like that. So these things are just absolutely absurd. The point is, is when God created Adam, there's no reference really whatsoever to his race and no amount of looking in the back of a strong concordance uh, dictionary. Uh, hermeneutical yoga will ever change the fact that if God had wanted us to know something specifically about an ethnic group, whether Adam was what we would call an Italian, a Filipino, a Japanese, whatever, that would have been made very clear to us. But it, but it wasn't because it really was not the most important thing at all. And I think it's remarkable that there are very few physical descriptions of many of the biblical persons that we encounter in Scripture. There's some. We know that Esau had reddish hair. We know that Samson was a strong guy. There's, there's a lot of things like that, but it's not that based on any description we could pull him out of a lineup and go, okay, that must be this person because it's been fully described. It deliberately doesn't describe people that way because that's not the essence of how God judges. God judges in terms of faithful or not faithful, righteous or unrighteous, obedient or disobedient. And those are the categories we have to look at as opposed to being thrown into a debate that really has probably more to do with individual preferences than it does whether or not someone is saying that this person or that group of people is inferior. And let's at the same time, again, uh, recognize, I've alluded to this once before, let me do so again, that I'm not saying, and I don't believe you are either, that there never have been cases of Christians, and even Christians of some means and learning, who have not promoted ideas that are contrary to God's law concerning uh, people of different ethnic groups. Yes, those things have happened, but they do so in opposition to the clear teaching of God's Word, even the, the passages that we have quoted so far that give people no leg to stand on whatsoever to promote the idea that certain people should not be given fair treatment or whatever the case may be simply because of the color of their skin or some cultural difference. Our job is to promote kingdom living and to promote a genuine kingdom-oriented society where God's law, God's Word is central. And we are all accountable to that law and that standard. You know, we recognize that some people may have different types of food from, for supper than, than what we do. But the key issue is, by what standard are they living their lives in terms of how they interact with each other? Is it based on God's standard or some other standard? And if we approach things from that point of view, then we're going to have a better chance of identifying erroneous thinking. But I don't think it's ever particularly effective to look at somebody who you disagree with and then throw a term or an, a remark at them meant to anger them. If you want to influence people, you do it mostly by your works, mostly by the, the way you carry yourself. And I don't think there's any reason not to identify differences. When people who say, you know, when I look at that person, I don't see his color. Well, maybe there's something wrong with your eyes because God made him that color. But I'm looking at a person who has dark skin and I say, I don't see the dark skin, then I've got a problem because this person has dark skin. And if I act like, well, the dark skin doesn't matter to me, then I'm really saying that God somehow made a mistake and that my judgment is that it'd be better if we had no skin color. Well, I'm sorry. 
everybody's going to have a skin color. I can remember when I was growing up and we spent a lot of time at the beach, there were times that my skin coloring was very dark. And I worked at a grocery store and this woman correctly identified that I wasn't black, that I wasn't of African-American descent. Back then, people weren't saying African-American. And she said, you know, my dear, if you keep going out in the sun, you will be confused with this group of people. And the word was Negro at the time because that's what was in use. And so I just was feeling like a smart aleck. And I said, ma'am, I am a Negro. <laughs> at which point she left her groceries, ran out of the store and handed me $20. Well, clearly, she was sharing a viewpoint. Doesn't mean that she went ahead and hurt people and necessarily treated them unjustly. She was stating her preference, however harsh that was. And I just decided I'd be just as snarky as she was being. But the point is, not everybody views things the same way. I can remember when I used to take one of my children to a retirement home. Now, a lot of people would look at older folks and say, oh, wow, look how sad conditions they're on. Well, she would say, mom, aren't they beautiful with their silver hair? I can't wait till I have silver hair. <laughs> well, she was viewing it from the point of view of this wasn't negative being old. This was positive. So if we push down people's throat that, you know what, you're probably going to be bigoted because everybody who looks like you is bigoted, then you have people apologizing for things they've never done. And the example that you gave um, earlier about pretending, some people pretending or claiming that they don't see skin color, they just see a human being, that's an example of what I was saying to uh, people falsifying their thinking or creating a distortion in reality that's not really there. Yes, God made of one blood all of us of different ethnic backgrounds, but our unity is in Christ Jesus. The idea of you know being quote unquote colorblind is a is a modern invention. There's there's no reason why people of different color, d different ethnicities cannot celebrate their differences and appreciate their differences if it is all within the context of a Christian faith and a Christian worldview. Uh, we recognize that that which unifies us really is not connected to these things uh, at all. And again, I want to go back to the example of the issue of the state. Uh, the state wants to be the unifying factor that brings all people together. And uh, it doesn't like the idea that there is a different authority. So we have this competition between the authority of Holy Scripture and what it prescribes for how citizens within the kingdom of God are to interact with each other as compared to the humanistic worldview, which has a different standard altogether. And as a matter of fact, when we drill down to the very bottom of it, the secular or humanistic worldview is profoundly discriminatory in terms of uh, race and culture. When you look at the people who are at the top upper echelons of the oligarchs and the big shots and the movers and the shakers who are behind a lot of the decisions that are made on a governmental level, there's not much ethnic diversity among them. It's not just racism. You can be a sexist. And if I hear one more woman say, don't look at me as though I'm a woman, just look at me as if I'm a person. Well, first of all, when you were born, sweetie, the doctor said, congratulations, you have a girl. And you came out anatomically that way. Of course, we're going to view you as a girl. God says that we, he made them male and female. So the problem isn't that we're human. The problem isn't that I'm a woman and you're a man. The problem is that mankind faces is when we go against what God says to do. Well, a lot of people think that it's very modern and advanced to say, don't look at me as my gender. 
until we go down the road and now we're talking about different genders that don't exist and that people's gender is something that's fluid, which of course it's not. And so if we buy into faulty presuppositions, we're going to end up having to live with conclusions that aren't biblical. And the progress of this very thing that you're talking about, we see it uh, hinted at, in some cases very explicitly discussed, with the idea of artificial intelligence. The only way that humanistic man can get beyond the the clear distinctions that God put into creation, uh, the two sexes, male and female, is to come up with some sort of complete distortion of a human being that is an artificially intelligent, manufactured eventually uh, self-automated machine that could be genuinely neutral or neuter. But with this, we're, we're completely losing any aspect of what it means to be human of any particular type. And this is a very frightening aspect in the, the direction that society wants to go with itself. Now, we know, because we have the assurance of God's Word and we understand what God's Word teaches, that sooner or later, at some point, all these attempts to play God, going back again to Genesis, uh, the early chapters, fail. They collapse. They can't sustain themselves because people cannot get beyond uh, their humanness and uh, the fact that they are created in God's image, but yet they're in rebellion against him. So no matter how successful they may be uh, in terms of doing these things, and no matter how many fantasies they make up in their science fiction movies about a dystopian future with machines and robots taking over, we know the future based on scripture is a very, very different thing than that. And we have to realize that when people elevate something beyond what God says should be elevated, that we're now talking idolatry. And the second commandment says that if idolatry is perpetuated, there are going to be ramifications from one generation to the other, to the next. Yet, those who love God, he extends mercy. So it's not that we forever have to be in a tug of war between the races or the genders or the generations or whatever it is, if we apply biblical law to our lives and really get down and study it and look at its implications, then I think for those who have a heart to serve God, that they're going to see that they have to not allow themselves to be put into a false category. And when they encounter things that are against scripture and it's been codified in their church or their Christian community, rather than leave or rather than say, I won't have anything to do with you, the better thing is to share God's truth and recognize that we can achieve the blessings and the mercy of God to the degree that we obey his word. The pristine or paradigm example given to us in Scripture, of course, is in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve functioning as God's vicegerents on earth prior to the entrance of sin into the human race. And that is the model by which we are to be focused as it has been restored to us and for us in Christ Jesus and his kingdom. And when we look at the earliest project of the disciples and the apostles of Jesus, that is what they were about doing. They were going all over the place, all over the very ethnically diverse parts of the Roman Empire, and proclaiming that kingdom, and in so many words saying, this is what we are getting back to. Christ has defeated Satan. The seed of the woman has crushed the head of the seed of the serpent, and now we are about bringing back together this original divine plan of God having created the human race 
to be in communion with him. And as the famous first question and answer of the Shorter Catechism tells us, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That is not inspired scripture, so it doesn't carry the same weight. But there's nothing in that catechetical statement that says only certain groups of people are to enjoy him and glorify him forever. There's no ethnic distinction. Uh, All people who are in Christ Jesus are to be doing that. But this is what is to be our motivation. And all these other things are simply tangents or diversions. The idea that only some ethnic groups or people of a certain language group can be truly close to God. You know, we, we joke about things. I've, you know, heard this in various contexts. Well, when we get to heaven, everybody will be speaking Dutch, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Maybe, you know, when your family, it was Italian or whatever, you know, these are all funny things and we can appreciate that, but we know good and well that these are merely temporary distinctions. And so there are going to be many areas where as people exercise their understanding of scripture, we are going to find that we might not agree with them. Some people will say, this is allowed, this is not allowed. You should only do it this way or you shouldn't do it that way. And this is where rather than trying to fight that battle, if we go back to God and his word, if we go back to the commandments of God and basically do a thus saith the Lord with regards to this, and you have, you know, quoted a variety of scriptures that would point to it, then if people say, no, I'm going to stick to it my way, then we understand who we're dealing with. But there are many people who have divergent points of view, and we don't ever want to say, that my preferences aren't allowed because they don't agree with your preferences. If our preferences are both under God and just different but not disobedient, then we have to acknowledge it. There's a book that comes to mind that is a really easy primer, and I think we might have referenced it in the past, called Law and Liberty. If you want to experience liberty, you must understand the law of God. That's available at Calcedon. It's written by Rush Dooney, and it's a great introduction to the whole concept of the law of God. And once you get your feet wet with that, then if you haven't already, you might be willing to tackle the larger work, the Institutes of Biblical Law, that talk about all the ramifications of a particular commandment in the life of the believer and the life of the society. You made reference to something earlier in our discussion that uh, led me to consider recommending a a work that I think is one of the most fascinating books that R.J. Rushdooning has written. It's only recently been published in the past few years. It's called The American Indian, A Standing Indictment Against Christianity and Statism in America. Some people perhaps don't realize that uh, R.J. Rushdooning, he was from Armenia. His family were Armenians. And his earliest ministry was to um, some obscure Native American tribes in northern Nevada, where he ministered for a number of years. And he did so as someone who, like they, were a quote-unquote ethnic minority. So he had a special affinity for the Native American people there. And this book is a chronicle, complete with some fascinating photographs of his life among them. And he gets into some of these very issues about the failure of something other than a Christian worldview to try to account for them and to uh, to deal with their differences. So I think our listeners may find this a very interesting and engaging reading. Again, The American Indian by R.J. Rushdie. Actually, but his first ministry was to Chinese in San Francisco. Yes, that's right. And so he had quite an appreciation for different ethnic groups. I spent a lot of time with Dr. Rushdie and we would talk about the difference between coming from an Italian background, coming from an Armenian background. And let's recognize that when people spend a lot of time together and culturally together, they end up with certain characteristics. And usually 
if you are all on the same page biblically, you can laugh about the differences and recognize that some have strengths and others have weaknesses. But it doesn't mean that we're ever allowed to treat someone unlawfully. We ask that you might reach out to us if you have suggestions or comments of your own. Andrea, could you give our email address, please, to our listeners? Out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And let me invite you once again to go to the Calcedon website, calcedon.edu, and then go to my particular subset of that, thekingdomdrivenfamily.com, where you'll have plenty of resources to help you maneuver your way through how to obey God in the course of your day-to-day life. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.